Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. We have a very interesting show for you today. If you've ever wondered how you select that one piece of software or one or two pieces of software to transform your business, whether you're a $10 million company or a $2 billion company, we have a guest that's going to go over that today. But before we get to Jeff Carr, I want to speak with Lou Weiss and see what's happening in his realm of the world. Lou, how are you today? I'm good. Uh, things are just so uh, so incredibly busy uh, with uh, manufacturing uh, generally going on in this country and all the good news that's coming out. And uh, um, and now we have our new show, uh, Women and Manufacturing, which I want to make sure everybody knows comes out on uh, Wednesdays at uh, 1 o'clock. Uh, accomplished women interviewing accomplished women. Uh, it's our, our third or fourth show, and we have some really terrific uh, feedback from uh, people who have listened to it. And uh, so we're really excited about it. Of course, we've doubled our workload here. And uh, so to answer your question, I don't even know what the weather is outside, as I normally would report to you. Uh, so. <laughs> So let's move this along because I got a lot of things to do today. So uh, Postscript, last week we had our global show, uh, uh, which is the economics of manufacturing from a global standpoint. We had Chung Wang reporting from uh, China, which was reporting basically all up numbers. We had uh, Roy Slow, our uh, senior correspondent, reporting on the U.K. and France and the uh, rest of the EU including Brexit. So there's a, a lot of a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, Norbert Orr from Strategus, Strategus, Strategus uh, with his PMI Global Report, where he talks about 18 different countries around the world. And Chad Moutre, who's the chief uh, economist with the National Association of Manufacturers, uh, who gave uh, really a terrific, uh, terrific report, uh, all in all, uh, the, the reports are just glowing, and uh, uh, I'm excited about it because it's really been now the first time in the last two years uh, that things have really been uh, up. Uh, consumer confidence is up. Owner, business owner confidence is up. And, um, you know, it, and all the uh, PMIs are up. Uh, the new PMI is going to be coming out in a couple of days. I suspect that it's going to be up in the upper 50s. Uh, last month was 50.2, I believe the number was. And I suspect it's going to be in around that area as well. Uh, so let me go to a couple of uh, interesting news items, and then we can get to our show. Uh, there are some glitches going on. Uh, the XM Bank. Uh, is still looking to be fully functional, which it's not. Uh, our illustrious President uh, uh, Trump nominated uh, Scott Garrett to fill the only empty seat 
uh, and the they cannot be uh, XM Bank can't be fully functional unless they have the quorum number of seats. And uh, actually, since we do not have that last seat filled, it's now been reported for the year 2016 showed that lending was the lowest point for XM Bank in the last 40 years. Now, what does that mean for us? It means that there are 27 countries that major U.S. corporations cannot bid on contracts because we are not there are the companies are not fully funded through XM Bank. So that is obviously directly affecting our export business. Now export did move up and it has been moving up, but it has nothing to do with XM Bank because they're restricted to a ten ten billion dollar ceiling uh, unless it's a fully funded a fully functional. Uh, uh, quorum. So that's that's the bad news. The bad news is that export is being negatively affected, and it doesn't look like Garrett, Scott Garrett's going to be picked. Uh, if he is, uh, we're in deep due, and uh, I think that uh, they ought to rethink and get a new new individual in there who actually supports XM Bank. Scott Garrett is a known individual to not believe in XM Bank in believing that that is corporate welfare, which meanwhile is one of the only agencies within the government that actually makes a profit every year. So think about that for a while. Uh, Moving on. Um, Here's an interesting one. Uh, The first time a robot passed a medical licensing exam, it seems as though that our friends over in China are really moving far, far forward in developing um, in, uh, artificial intelligence, where they developed a robot who took a uh, medical exam to become a medical practitioner. The robot got a score of 456 points on this exam which is 96 points above the required minimum marks. Uh, that's just amazing. This robot was developed by a Chinese AI company called iFlyTech. And uh, matter of fact, if anyone's interested, it's www.iflytech.com. And uh, they've been designing this now for some time. Uh, and uh, it looks like they may wind up having licensed uh, medical practitioners. Um, maybe when going to China, Americans won't be so concerned because, uh, you know, the hospitals there aren't, aren't the most wonderful in the world, but maybe their robot practitioners are better. So we'll see how that plays out. Interesting. 100 million expansion could add over 400 manufacturing jobs in a company called Fresenus Kabai. It's a pharmaceutical company that's opening up in Wilson, North Carolina. The company is putting in a $100 million expansion. They're going to be adding 450 new jobs on top of the 100 that they already have. And uh, the State's Department of Commerce and Economic Development 
partnership of uh, North Carolina spearheaded the support for this project. And um, it's going to take a total of 12 years. They'll be receiving uh, state reimbursement subsidies. And that seems to be the way we're getting foreign companies to come into this country. Um, It seems as though that they may have problems, though, in getting new employees at that level, being that all the baby boomers are retiring and the millennials are coming into the uh, workforce. Uh, But maybe we'll have Chinese medical practitioners working in the Indian drug companies here in the United States. It gets a little confusing, but we'll see how that plays out. Next item. Manufacturing is actually ahead of the curve in many business areas in the United States. And it seems as though uh, from everything that we're reading, there's pretty much expansion and uh, uh, improvement in all manufacturing areas throughout the United States. So uh, according to the report from uh, uh, manufacturing, uh, NAM, uh, National Association of Manufacturing, claims that this is, uh, this is the case. We are moving forward. So let's hope this continues into 2018. And uh, Tim, if I'm not mistaken, we've been hearing that uh, this expansion that we're in could conceivably move straight through to 2020. So uh, it's it's a it's a good time to be uh, in business now. Uh, also, a Capital One, the bank, uh, runs a small business growth index, and they had a survey this past summer of 500 small business owners across the country, and find that optimism is up. 60% of those polled said that their market conditions are good to excellent. And that's been on the rise since 2012. Electric vehicle sales surged 63% this year, year on year in the third quarter, record levels. Uh, The hybrid vehicles uh, have 287,000, just 287,000 units in just the third quarter. It's just, uh, just incredible stuff going on. Uh, Labor Department claims U.S. consumer prices rise, rose slightly in October. Big deal. Not really concerned about that. As long as you got money, you can pay the higher prices. Uh, Alabama, North Carolina, looks like they're competing for the new Toyota Mazda factory. And there seems to be a heated uh, competition uh, in that... Uh, it seems seems as though that North Carolina's got a bit of an edge because there's a lot of automotive in Alabama, and North Carolina has that advantage uh, uh, because they have uh, a very good talent pool uh, that they can draw from. So, uh, Tim, I can go on here for another hour, which I don't think everybody wants to hear from me about, But everything is up, and, uh, you know, I'm excited. So back to you. Can't help but be excited. Certainly it looks like if this keeps going, we'll enter the second longest expansion 
uh, in recorded, uh, uh, I should say recorded history exactly since about 1950. Uh, and we may actually test the longest expansion, economic yeah. expansion since 1950. I, I, I think so. I think so. And by the way, there was one, there's one other point that I did want to uh, point out, and that is uh, to our audience about uh, women and manufacturing, which is our other show, which is, uh, is aired on Wednesdays, and that's women and manufacturing, which we affectionately refer to as WHAM. And uh, we've done three or four shows. So we have another one. Uh, tomorrow on Wednesday and we're getting some terrific feedback Uh, matter of fact I'm leaving this afternoon to go down to the Department of Commerce in Washington because uh, they got wind of it and uh, they gave us uh, a real big thumbs up and they said wham is fantastic quote unquote so we're going down to talk about it and see uh, how we can spread the word, uh, perhaps through the government, uh, being that uh, the Department of Commerce is uh, also one of the leading uh, departments that uh, generate uh, profits for the U.S. Uh, economy. So everybody tune in 1 o'clock tomorrow to WAM. And we are going to, uh, it's in our archives, so you can listen to it on demand at any time after 1 o'clock. And uh, enjoy the show. We have Jeff Carr on the line with us. Jeff is the CEO of Ultra Consultants. He's a Chicago-based consulting firm. Happened to work in the manufacturing and distribution industries, which as everyone knows who listens to Manufacturing Talk Radio is our dear love in uh, manufacturing. Jeff, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thank you. Uh, pleased to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Oh, we're glad to have you on the show. Uh, Jeff, I have to ask, in terms of the size of companies you deal with, do you cover the spectrum from the largest to the smallest? Well, I'd say um, maybe take a little bit off each end. Um, okay. <laughs> our clients range in size from about $10 million up to about $2 billion. A third of our clients are under $50 million. A third of them are between 50 and $200 million. And one-third are over $200 million. Lou? Uh, thank you for joining us, Jeff. Uh, well, glad to be here, Lou. Yeah, great. Uh, so the size of your, size of your company now is um, – and growing is what? Our company has been growing considerably over the last, really since the economy really improved, about 2009, and we've doubled and doubled again. So um, this year we'll do close to $8 million in revenue. Uh, uh, we have about 50-plus employees and 1099s, which we employ for our client projects. Well, that's oh, uh, great. Good. That's great to hear that you're uh, improving. And uh, the uh, I came in a, a little bit behind the clock on uh, this show, so I, I may ask a question or two that uh, you've already responded to. Um, when when you're dealing with a uh, client, uh, the type of company, as you just said, is anywhere from zero to hundreds of millions of dollars. How do you go about approaching, particularly the smaller 
customer because the larger company, they've got lots of money. They don't worry about expenditures. But what about the smaller companies? Uh, you know, we've just come off of the Great Recession, which has now been going on now was it, uh, 10 years, nine years, something like that. Um, how, how do you approach them with the expenditure, the added expenditure to uh, bring your uh, uh, process to the company? Well, every every company, even the you know whether it's small or large, has very similar problems when you deal with these types of projects that we deal with. Mm-hmm. Again, you, we need to focus on, and I'm sure some of your questions will be geared towards this. We're focusing really on what I call information system transformations, where we're uh, you know a, a smaller company or a larger company has a lot of waste and a lot of problems with perhaps an older legacy system. They want to modernize. They want to improve their business processes. Well, that's that's there whether you're a $10 million company or whether you're a, a billion-dollar corporation. They all mm-hmm. have the same problems, but the scope is different. Uh, the $10 million company has only one facility typically, uh, probably only has maybe 50 to 100 employees or maybe even less. Um their application scope tends to be similar, but it's not as complex. They don't have multiple plants. They don't have multiple countries. So the scope of the actual business processes that they're trying to improve is a bit smaller. Having said that, it, it is similar. Um, what we do is we have a, a methodology that we use that we think is very successful. Um, we've used it over and over again to help companies make improvements successfully. Over half of these projects, whether it's a small company or a large company, fail to achieve a reasonable ROI. So our methodology incorporates a lot of activities that are going to address change management and risk management, et cetera. Um, It's really the difference between large and small is really scale. Uh, The scale of the scope, the scale of the activities that we provide in the smaller case, we're pro- providing a lot more guidance and direction and saying, here, we come in and we spend a couple of days and say, okay, now let's analyze this. Now I'll let you, you go away and do this. Uh, with the larger companies, we, we're tending there to be there more on a full-time basis, to be a member, a full-time member of their team. Mm-hmm. So you've kind of uh, absorbed into into their process to make those determinations of the the value of the process. Right. So with the method, the standard methodology we have, it's very easy for us to educate a small company how they should go about doing this transformation. Um, and then we could come in and audit it and make sure they're on track. With a larger company, it's much more complex. They need more help. They need more handholding. They need. They generally don't have the, the level of staff that they need to really make these projects successful. So we tend mm-hmm. to those cases add more full-time people. Um, in one of your webinars, uh, and we'll talk about uh, those addresses where our audience can uh, listen into some of your uh, material. In one of your uh, webinars, you refer to value realization. Uh, right. you know, we're, we're, becoming, we're becoming a world of terminology that no one understands. So why don't you explain <laughs> that to us? Okay. Um, I'm gonna. If I'm a company and I want to improve my business, and I want to do that by enabling new technology, and I want to 
take out my older system and I want to bring in a newer information system. I want to get a return on investment. I want to improve my business as a result of that clear decision. That's the major reason that many companies go about doing these projects. We call it value realization. Now, how do they get to that? Well, over half, as I said earlier, over half of these projects fail to do that. They fail to meet, achieve an ROI. And we have found that one of the reasons is that when they get done with the selection of their new system and they go through a relatively complex and very detailed implementation, the staff that's worked on the project is very tired and worn out. The whole company is worn out because they put a lot of effort into bringing up this new system. The vendor is done. They basically, their budget has been expired. Uh, they, they've gotten the company up and live, and so the vendor goes away. So the company is left to their own devices. And over half the time, they don't really make any meaningful improvements in their system, even though they've got those capabilities. So we, what we've done is we've put together a project methodology that focuses on the value statements that the company wants to achieve. And once the implementation is completed, we will then take the, the business people, the business users, and we'll put them through a program of activities that allow us to analyze the value statement, um, understand the root cause as to why aren't we achieving the goals we think we should be achieving, and then help them construct the activities and the programs and perhaps even some new reports and new dashboards that they may need to be able to better use the system to achieve the specific goals. When you look at these particular projects, it's all about better managing the productivity of your staff. It's about getting better information to make better decisions. It's about having better controls over our assets, our, assets, our people, our production, our customers, our inventory, etc. And so those are the things that the CEO wants to improve. He wants to make improvements in those, and if he's going to invest, you know, 100000 or $10 million, he's going to want to get a significant return on investment, which is an improvement at the business. So value realization is the achievement of those value goals that are, can be accomplished once we complete the implementation of new technology. So when you're dealing with a uh, manufacturer or whoever who's uh, contemplating bringing your program in, is it a hard sell? Um, we, and when, we, I mean, when I mean a hard sell, not meaning that you're hard selling, but that they are fully um, understanding uh, what needs to be done and the, and the potential value realization. Well, the good news is that there are so many people out there looking for help with these types of projects that we don't have to necessarily go out there and, and as a missionary and sell them on doing it. Many people are coming to us and saying, hey, I've got this problem. I need help. And from there, we then help them figure out the right path going forward. We do a lot of marketing about these transformation projects. We have a lot of case studies about different companies and the success they've had. We've got a lot of uh, lessons learned webinars that, and best practice webinars that we, we teach to, to get our message out to the marketplace. But generally, companies need 
to continue to keep up with technology. Technology is going at a very rapid rate. Um, if you went out and bought a new system and you implemented it today, you probably have a tremendous amount of headroom in it. You can grow with it. The problem is that those, these systems will be outdated within a couple of years. And that's just the way technology is moving. So can, if I buy a new system and I implement it today, how long is that going to stay? When do I need to upgrade? When do I need to go to a bigger system or a better system? Things are moving so fast, it's very difficult for the manufacturing executives to invest and keep up with technology. So we have found, and I've been doing this for a long time, Lou, you, know, you and I talked about our agents things like right. that or in the 50-year time frame. So I've been, I, I've seen a lot of changes in the technology, but what I always see is people constantly coming back to the marketplace. At any one time, I've always estimated that 10 to 20 percent of the manufacturing marketplace is looking to replace their information technology systems at any one point in time. Well, it seems as though that that's a, almost a, a necessary evil uh, based on uh, the, the way the uh, markets are going. Um, uh, Tim? Jeff, I'm just wondering with these systems that you uh, put into customer locations, do they replace or integrate the Microsoft Office Suite, Word, Excel because I've been in companies where the staff doesn't even know how to cut and paste in Word, and the learning curve is gigantic. Right, that's a good question. Uh, remember, you know, we don't we don't sell software. We're an independent group, so we don't really care what system it is that the system eventually chooses. We're there to help them make the right decision and then help them make the right implementation and get and, and really help them with their benefits realization but coming back to your question um, about 10 years ago we started to see the integration of office to these ERP systems and of course the bigger guys like SAP and Oracle they did it first and mm -hmm. then of course Microsoft themselves came on the marketplace and, and had their own product and that was a natural uh, as time has gone on, just about every ERP vendor out today has an integration to Office. So it's sort of a fait accompli. It's there. You're going to use it. You're going to have to learn how to use it. Um, so it's it's all part of the package and the systems that they they select and they implement. And Jeff, in the manufacturing uh, process from the very front end, whether you call that sales or marketing or flip those around, marketing, sales, all the way to it's at the loading dock door. Where are you working in that stream? Is it in just the manufacturing flow through production, or does it back up all the way to sales and marketing? Well, that's a good, great question. Um, a lot of times when we go into a client, they think that uh, this is all about just replacing the current system. And the mm -hmm. current system typically has been limited to its capabilities of the past, and the older systems tend to just do, you know, take orders and uh, manage inventory, manage purchase orders, manage some production, do a little bit of scheduling, uh, integrate to financials. Um, and a lot of people think, well, that's what we're trying to replace. Well, that's not. 
because what the companies have done over time is they've had to implement what I'll call point solutions uh, around those core ERP solutions. Like they've gone out and gotten a CRM, or they've implemented some coding applications, or they've, uh, they've gone out and bought a forecasting module or application, or they bought a new quarter uh, quality system, or they're just using um, Excel for quality, uh, and on and on and on. And so what we tell people when we go in and we educate them on best practices, we try to show them that really what we're looking for is a completely integrated system that handles all of the business processes within the company that not only uh, help these, their own users but help their, their customers and their suppliers. So you're really working with customers, suppliers, employees when you're really looking at these total systems. Uh, so to answer your question directly, yes, it, we do go all the way back to the marketing and sales and take it all the way through the logistics, loading dock, and even after that, the post, post-sales support. Uh, Jeff, when you were talking uh, earlier about going into a company and determining and making an evaluation of the things that they need, and you come up with a, uh, a product and a process that will work for them, uh, over a period of time, as you pointed out, things change and evolve and improve or not. And are you with that client through that whole process? Are you there and available? Are you there making recommendations on new new things that have come up that would uh, service their uh, system better than what uh, you originally brought into the uh, system? It really varies from customer to customer as to what our role is over time. Uh, there mm-hmm. is a, a journey, a life cycle, if you will, that a company has to go through to be successful at transforming older information systems to, to modern information system best practices. And that journey typically lasts a year to two years to go through the entire journey to basically get ready for um, the, that, to get your team organized, to get processes analyzed, to get your future state defined, to identify vendors, to evaluate vendors, to implement the new system, to start to realize benefits. Now, that whole life cycle can last a good year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, many companies today have a continuous improvement program that once they've established this new system, they have a, a, a team of people that will continue to look at improvements. We often are, become part of that team uh, for, the, for our larger clients, for our smaller clients. We tend to see them more on a, maybe a monthly basis or, or even less depending upon how much improvement they want to do in a given year. But just like anything else, um, each company has to think about how much it's going to invest in improvements after it's made a major investment in a new system. Jeff, uh, there are – sorry, Lou. Go ahead, Tim. No, go ahead, Tim. Jeff, if I Google ERP systems, I obviously will get a laundry list of companies offering them. And if I Google sales systems, I'll get – uh, NetSuite and Salesforce and Microsoft. and So are you working with client companies to help them analyze what they have, what they need, and the various options they have in the marketplace and what they cost and how long it'll take to integrate? 
Uh, that's a great question. And what you found out is that it's a very complex process. Um, oh, and yeah. that's a challenge that most companies have. You know, you start to Google it and you get a lot of answers and, well, are these the right ones? Who should I be looking at? Am I looking at the whole scope of, of applications that I should be? So that's right. Uh, you know, our role is to help educate them. I mean, it's like, okay, a company is going to do this. They haven't done it for over 10 years, or maybe it's over 20 years. So they really don't know how to go out and buy systems and make this transformation. So they're coming to Ultra as a higher gun to be part of their company to help guide them through this process successfully. You know, we do, you know, close to 50 of these a year. Uh, we do, uh, we've done well over 300 of these particular projects. Um, and obviously very successfully with a lot of knowledge. Um, not only do we have a service arm, but we have a research arm to keep up abreast with the latest technologies of all the players in the marketplace. And there are a lot of them. I'm glad that uh, you offer the service. So and now you're sitting in a client location and starting to go through the analysis with them. There have to be some red flags that pop up both in your mind and theirs as they look at all this. What are some of the common red flags, Jeff? Um, well, there's a lot of red flags that you can find. I mean, I, I find that um, the biggest challenge for most companies is uh, change management and risk management and um, what I'll call CEO involvement. Uh, so I'd say those are some of the, those are probably the three biggest things that I see that are challenges for manufacturing companies when they get involved. So I'm going to go kind of go backwards. I'll start with the CEO. So I often find in a, so a mid-sized company that the CEO doesn't have a lot of literacy with with what the value of a new system is. He's more, hey, I got an accounting system that works. Why do I need to change? But his people are telling me I don't have the tools to compete. I need a better system. Okay, go buy it. That's a, you know that's kind of the attitude often. And so, but this is a major project. It's like it's almost like a, you know buying a new plant. It's a capital expenditure. The CEO and the CFO need to be part of this. They need to be part of the executive leadership of this because they've got to be telling the business people how important this is, and they need to spend the time to be doing this right. The other two areas that I see are also critical issues that come up are change management. Um, you know, we uh, I, I think I've read in the last, in a number of different articles, uh, in the next five years, a good percentage of the workforce in manufacturing is retiring. Um, new people are coming up all the time. Um, some of those people that are retiring that would be involved in this initiative may not want to be involved in change. Some companies adapt to change well, other companies do not. And if you do not as a company adapt to change, these projects are going to be very difficult. So we have, within our methodology, we have a lot of activities that address change management and risk readiness and risk assessments also to say, well, where's going to, where's, let's find the problem before we actually hit it. Is it going to be in data conversion? Is it going to be over here in scheduling where we really don't have enough people? Uh, and this is really a major change. Where is it? And what kind of education, what kind of help do we need to give those people? So summarize, I think for your question, the three major things I see are the issues are CEO involvement, change mm -hmm. management, and risk management. Okay. 
Well, it's interesting that you bring up change because, you know, the world is constantly changing. Business is constantly changing. Nowhere do I think it is evolving faster than in manufacturing. And we are actually launching a new show in November called Women and Manufacturing. It'll have a rotating base of hosts. And one of the hosts is Barbara Troutline from Change Catalyst. And it's interesting, when we interviewed her, she said change lights up the same area of the brain as pain does. <laughs> so I have to believe Forgive that, me. you know, and Lou has seen it in his own company at All Metals and Forge Group, which is the sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio. And change is just a very difficult swamp to work your way through. Uh, do you have any uh, uh, pathways that you normally use to navigate the swamp? I'm not paying for the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's you, you got to look at the swamp as a whole, and you got to look at the individual pieces of the swamp. So, what we try when we attack change management, we try to attack it from a, a communication point of view, uh, from an education point of view. And, uh, and then we also um, look at the individual components as to whether or not they're ready, ready for change. And if they're not, how do we deal with that? If I'm, if I'm going to be implementing a new system, I'm going to look at all of the different pieces of my system and analyze where is the major change going to occur from what I'm already doing. So let's say I'm going in a new system, and I'm going to decide that I'm going to redo my numbering system. My just a let's simple thing, part numbering. Well, we, you and I might think, well, gee, that sounds simple, right? Well, these people have got thousands of items and then bills of materials and on and on and on. And to come up with a new, uh, new part number, it's just, that's huge change. So how am I going to deal with that? Who's, who has to deal with that? Uh, how are the customers going to react? And just about everybody in the business is going to be affected by that. So how are we going to do that? And when you start to analyze it, you may say, hey, change may not be a good idea in that particular area. Maybe we're going to stick with the current system and figure out how we can work within some of the other tools in order to get the information out of it the way we want to. So maybe we're using category codes or market codes or something else rather than changing our product number. So that's just a simple thing that, You've got to analyze that you're kind of going through this and look at different the different parts of change. So you've got to kind of dissect it and then meet as a team. So you have to have a change management team within your organization analyzing as you're making decisions on how to configure the new system. Well, I love the fact that you uh, talk about not only what are we changing, but the real key question is who does it affect? That's right. That's often the question not asked. It, right. It's discovered later. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Joe out on the shop floor, you know, the he's the manager of the third shift. You know, he's going to have to do this, this, and this. You better go talk to Joe. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Jeff, Jeff, let me ask you a question. You 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 hit on a, a very interesting point, and I don't know if many people may have picked up on it, but I did. Um, change management team. You uh, go into a little bit more detail on that. And the reason why I ask 
is that, and you said this earlier on in the show, that the CEO and the president and the CFO, you know, they're busy uh, running the money, running the show, running the marketing, and they're not totally into uh, running the company per se. So you're talking about a change management team, and you all, and you also mentioned that uh, um, these. Uh, there was a there was a, a butterfly that I think just flew past my microphone, which I heard threw me off course. Um, the CEO has to be part of the change because nothing changes unless the CEO does it. But he may be one of the least knowledgeable people in regards to the company in terms of management. Well, uh, that's true. So more than that. You- when I talk about a change management team, what uh, what I'm talking about is a is a portion of the project team that's uh, that's responsible for analyzing and addressing change. So, when I put my project team together, I'm going to have a a steering committee, right? I'm going to have probably the CFO or the director or manager or VP of operations is going to be the executive sponsor, and then he's going to have a project management team, a couple of, you know, maybe a primary project manager and then some secondary project manager. And then they're going to have what I call business process owners. So let's just say customer service. So typically that might be the director of customer service or the it might just be your lead customer service person. But that person then now owns the set of processes that are going to affect customer and they're going to they're going to be part of the whole project as we navigate from analyzing our current state, developing our future state, evaluating vendors, and implementing new processes. So that business process owner becomes critical. Now, in addition to that team, I need to carve out of that team a couple of people that are just responsible for change, and they're going to be given certain activities to do. The first activities, let's just do a compete complete census of all of our employees and let's identify the change that's going to happen the major change that's going to happen with this new system now let's build a matrix of employees and major change who's going to be affected by change now let's evaluate each one of those users and evaluate them is this person pro change or or is a terrorist (laughs) somebody that's going to kind of get in the way of this particular venture. Um, So that's what I meant when I meant uh, a change management team, a a smaller group of people that reports up to the project manager and to the steering committee that can analyze change and report back to the steering committee and to the primary management team where change is going to occur and we're going to have problems. So I mentioned, hey, let's go talk to Joe in the third shift. Well, the people on that team are going to be going and talking to Joe and then dealing with Joe and educating him on change and what he's got to do. They're not the trainees, trainers per se, but they're just they're overseeing all of the change activities that go on in this particular project. So correct me if I'm wrong, that the employee base is very much part of this uh, change process. Oh, I'll, I'll very, very much so. <clears throat> Every employee is going to be affected by nuisance. But you also also know that uh, change is very difficult, and 
a core of employees within a company will be resistant to change. And I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, in 1994, uh, I implemented ISO within the company. And uh, not only did I get pushback from the employees about why do we have to do this? Why do we have to make change? Why do we need all the paperwork? Why, why, why? Uh, I also, when I did finally get the uh, registration, one of the, the serious pushbacks was from uh, friendly competitors who would call me up because I was then marketing and advertising the fact that we were ISO'd. That the and the best comment of all was, "Why would you want to allow yourself to be dictated to by a foreign country?" <laughs> and in this and in this case, ISO was uh, presented globally by a Swiss company. And my response then and still is, either you do it now or do it later, you're going to ultimately do it. So uh, my, my, my point is, and, and we did as a, a manufacturing company and, and trying to get our employees to buy into it was uh, extremely difficult, particularly at the beginning. Yeah, well, that's why, that's, that's exactly right. I think your experience with ISO is the same experience that many companies have when they try to implement a new enterprise system. Um, there's not everybody that's going to be on board with doing it. And if you get to the end of the line and you try to implement it and you've got people out there that are resisting it, you've got big problems. Uh, so you have to address that early and you have to address it often. And that's why the CEO has to be involved in his management team. They have to understand what the change is and understand the value of the change and be able to communicate that to the team and say, this is why we're going to make the change. You did that when you were doing ISO. And so that's what you Correct. have to be doing also with these types of projects. You've got to be understanding the value and communicating the value. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question as if I was a CFO now. What's my return on investment? I'm going to invest X into your new project and product uh, do the project. It's going to take a year or two. So um, not sure how, you know, what kind of numbers we're talking about. What am I expected to get in return? Well, let's first of all look at what we're going to what these new systems are going to cost. So I use a one to three percent ratio. So if I'm a fifty million dollar company, I might spend anywhere from a half a million dollars to a million five on just acquiring the new system. It's not all my internal costs, but it's just my cash outlay in the first year. Um, so if I'm looking at that, I, you know, am I looking at a CFO? He's going to say, you know, am I going to get a return on that? You know, is this a lot of times people today are looking at it and saying, well, this is the cost of doing business. We got to upgrade it. I say, no, I don't think that's a very good way to justify it. I say there are definitely things that are going to improve in the business that are going to give us a return on investment. So now what are they typically? Well, number one, most people see a dramatic improvement in the productivity of their white-collar user base. So that's all the salespeople, all the marketing people, the customer service, quality, production, da-da-da-da. So all the people you go through there and you think about, gee, if I can improve their productivity by 10%, 25%, even 50%, that would allow me to basically have the resources to be able to grow faster. And, it, and to scale my G&A expenses accordingly. Uh, we have one client, a toy manufacturer that was a $100 million company, and the primary reason they did it was because they knew they were going to double their size. 
but they didn't want to double their staff. And so by implementing a new system, they made everybody much more productive. The company grew, doubled its size, but only increased its G&A by about 15%. So a dramatic improvement in their margins and profitability. No, that, is, that, that is quite dramatic. So quite the, dramatic. Other, the other piece to it is access to information. People continue to struggle with it, even though there's lots of business intelligence tools out there. People continue to struggle with having good access to information, and therefore they're handcuffed in making quick decisions. So that's the next area that gives them a return. I've got better information. I'm going to make better decisions to be able to drive better profits. Now, those are the top ones that I constantly see over and over again that I talk to CFOs about. But then I also see other things. Uh, like scheduling. I've got a lot of bottlenecks. I'm not getting efficient production. It takes too long to basically uh, get my product out the door. i got to shorten my time frame. So with some good scheduling tools, uh, I'm going to be able to make improvements with that. The cost of quality is another area that people struggle with. They've got older systems or Excel or a lot of redundant data, uh, and they don't have good ways to manage the cost of quality. Um, also, customer service. There's a tremendous improvement in sharing and collaborating of information with these modern information systems. So you're going to be able to make your customers happy or keep them longer and sell more to them. Uh, and I could go on for another hour or so talking about different value values that are in these particular systems for different parts of the company. So there, are, there is significant payback. But again, there's change, and there's you got to get to that, and you got to progressively go after it, and you got to teach people how to take advantage of these new new tools to achieve that ROI. Um, a lot of times, I see reduction in inventory is a is a major part of it. Still, you would think that well, God, by now we're all probably down to you know uh, minimal inventory. In some industries, industries like the automotive industry are, but in other industries, they're they're not, and they still there's a lot of room that they have to improve inventory terms, et cetera. So lots of areas for the CFO. Give me the CFO's name. I'd love, love to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, in your experience, is the, uh, let's say the middle market customer going to end up buying a single magical piece of software that's going to handle everything they have from uh, sales and marking all the way to the loading dock, or are they going to be getting two, maybe three that they have to integrate? Um, so your question is, uh, are they going to get a complete system that all works together, or do they have to go out and buy two or three systems that work together? Yeah, do they have to uh, buy uh, software A from company C and software B from company X, and then they got to integrate to get from the, the uh, front door all the way to the back loading dock? Well, that's a, that is a very good question. Um, when I look at the complete, uh, all the business processes that are uh, available within the four walls of a manufacturing company, I, I only see one vendor out there that kind of has a complete end-to-end integrated solution, and that's SAP. And I'm not pitching SAP. Don't get me wrong. So what do the other guys do? Well, they have third parties. So let's just say something like PLM, Product Lifecycle Management. That's for the engineering team. Most of the current players out there today don't have a complete PLM system within what they'll call their ERP 
suite of applications. Uh, but what they have is a partnership with somebody else or maybe even their own product that they're selling as an independent standalone product that has to be integrated with their core. So the answer to your question is rarely do people buy uh, everything totally integrated and from one vendor with the whole all process supported. What they're buying is a complete system that's interfaced often with point solutions that's supported by the vendor. So it looks like it's one system, but in fact, it, there's different pieces of it. And that's just the nature of the beast today and the, and the way these different vendors have gone about creating their suite of products to address all of the functionality of manufacturing. Jeff, I, I want you to know that all your answers are absolutely right on the mark. Uh, I, I appreciate you being with us because Ultra Consultants and you in particular really know what you're doing because there was no fluff in this. We've got to get this interview out to the world. This is some terrific information. Thank you. Thank you. appreciate it. Jeff, and thank you. And I'd like you to give us your uh, website information and contact information just so our listeners could uh, reach out to you. The uh, website is www.ultraconsultants, plural. So it's www.ultraconsultants. Uh, Ultra is spelled with a U-L-T-R-A. And then consultants, everybody knows how to spell that. So ultraconsultants.com. To get to me, uh, all you got to do is take Ultra Consultants and just say Jeff, J, J.F. Carr, J is in Jeffrey, F is in Frank Carr, C-A-R-R, at ultraconsultants.com. And you're located in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, just as a, an aside, do you have uh, multiple offices around the country? We are uh, a virtual company, and we're really proud of that. Uh, we do not have a headquarters office where all of our employees work out of. Uh, everybody basically is on the road and out. You know, my sales and marketing guys work out of their office, home offices. Uh, we're always traveling, out seeing our clients, and so it doesn't make a lot of sense to have brick and mortar. Uh, I don't believe in it anymore. Uh, it's been a very effective way, and the, the way we have technology set up today, we're it's very easy for us to be able to communicate. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we do, we've got our consultants are spread around the country right now, and those, those are our offices. Well, excellent. And uh, I hope some people who may need your insight and your uh, valuable tools will take advantage of it. We want to thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, I enjoyed our conversations that you and I have had prior to the show. And, uh, if anything new comes up in terms of uh, your world, uh, give us a holler so we can get the message out to those who need it. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Sure, sure thing. Thank you. And we've been speaking with Jeff Carr, who is the CEO of Ultra Consultants. And we will be posting this along with our other podcasts at Manufacturing Talk Radio, mfgtalkradio.com. We certainly will encourage people to listen to this one. As I said, there was no fluff in that interview. This was great, solid information, and we appreciate that uh, Jeff came on the show. So until we uh, get together with you again on our next show, which is Tuesday, Lou, anything that you want to throw in here before we uh, wrap it up? No, I'm on vacation. 
Well, we'll, good for uh, you. Yeah, we'll we'll talk uh, next week. You know, talking on manufacturing talk radio is like a vacation. I feel as though that you and I are doing good things, and we're helping people, and we're helping uh, our our guest speakers and uh, our uh, listeners. And uh, I I I know we're doing good because we hear about it from our listeners and our guests all the time. So that's all I want to do is give a little plug to manufacturing talk radio so another fine interview uh jeff carr the ceo and founder of ultra consultants i hope you all got some uh serious benefit out of that uh in terms of the type of uh software that you need and the type of uh outside consulting to help you make uh the appropriate decisions for your particular company as you heard they do uh, work with small, medium size, and large corporations. So thanks a lot, Jeff, for that uh, uh, interview. Uh, next week, we have uh, Chris Keel, Managing Director of the National Association of Credit Management and Armada Corporate Intelligence, and he's also the Chief Economist for FMA. And uh, he will be discussing the November Credit Managers uh, Index. And we also have Tom uh, Tim Fiore, who's the chair of the Institute of Supply Management, the Manufacturing Business Survey Committee, with the PMI for November. And as I said at the beginning of the show, uh, last month's number was 58.2. I am suspecting that uh, unless anything traumatic happens, I'm expecting that's going to be up in the same area. And I might even hazard a guess, which most economists don't dare do. I'm suggesting that it may even be a higher number than 58.2. So if anybody is uh, taking bets, uh, don't call your bets into <laughs> Las Vegas. Uh, you can all beat me up if I'm wrong. Uh, so that that's my prediction. Tim? Manufacturing Talk Radio does not do lines on the PMI, so don't call us either. <laughs> um, we we certainly enjoy everyone who tunes into the show. You can find all of our shows at mfgtalkradio.com, including the Women and Manufacturing Show. Probably one of the uh, most exciting releases that we've done. They have uh, several shows already posted, excellent interviews, great information for women in the industry we encourage you to tune in and listen to those shows. And as always, thank you for listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>